Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hi, I'm Mark Kate. Welcome to episode 37 of Why We Listen. In this podcast, I meet with my guests to listen to and talk about music. I ask them to choose three pieces of music in advance using whatever criteria they like. And we listen to those songs and we talk about them. In this episode, I meet with Matt Worth in his apartment in Brooklyn. Matt runs the label Revenge and the store Commend. And we listen to 18 and Dreaming by Peter Ivers, Joey's Camel by Godly and Cream, and The Surface of the Water by Circus Underwater. And we talked about reissues and major label obscurities and big production ideas on a tight budget. But we're now listening to, uh, in the background, Don't Go Lose It Baby by Hugh Masekela. If you don't already, how can I not recommend you subscribe to Why We Listen on iTunes or Stitcher to uh, float this erratically scheduled podcast gingerly into your iPhone or whatever you use? So in light of my conversation with Matt and uh, our talk about reissues, I'd like to talk about something that has really bothered me for a really long time, and it's especially on my mind right now. I've been binge-watching the FX show The Americans, which takes place in the early 80s. And thankfully, uh, despite that, it's not burdened by too much like retro art direction. Like there's a Rubik's Cube or an Eddie Murphy reference here and there. But to its credit, the 80s-ness is a pretty soft background instead of like burdening the show with nostalgia and irony. However, in like every other episode-ish, there is music in the soundtrack that's really out of place. The show takes place in the suburbs of Northern Virginia, and the soundtrack often has Roxy music or Echo and the Bunnyman, The Cure, Yaz. This is the music that I listened to in the 80s, and I was then, and I'm still very aware of, how atypical those bands were in middle America. This happens a lot in 80s movies, right? Where the soundtrack is more reflective of the nostalgia of the filmmakers than of the actual period and place. If you've seen Donnie Darko, you might remember there's a scene where Donnie and Gretchen arrive at uh, the party of some rich popular kid and Joy Division is playing. Now, Joy Division was not the soundtrack of a generic American teenager, but it is if you watch movies about the 80s made in the last 20 years. In reality, that party was more likely to be listening to like Huey Lewis and the News or Katrina and the Waves or something. I think that the, the real disparity between America's soundtrack in the 80s and the one depicted on TV and film is because of who makes those decisions in TV and the film industry. I think it's because the type of American teenager who actually listened to British post-punk in the 80s, like me, is the type of person who would grow up to be a music supervisor for TV and film. The opposite of this is the absence of the Beatles from the soundtrack of any TV show or movie. The Beatles were the soundtrack of so much public space in the late 60s, early 70s, and beyond, but they didn't license their music at any reasonable cost, so movies from and about the 60s are historically incorrect for not having Beatles songs ubiquitously playing everywhere. That's why the Mad Men episode Lady Lazarus was so special. If you saw it, you might remember at uh, Megan Draper's request, Dawn sits down and listens to the Beatles song Tomorrow Never Knows. 
And that cost AMC a quarter of a million dollars just to insert that little fragment of authenticity that other shows and films can't render. So that's the difficulty with rendering the past, right? It's, it's subject to will and subjectivity and finance, and it ends up creating this sort of historical retcon. Anyways, here's Matt Worth. So where are all your records? Upstairs. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a whole room devoted to them. Oh, great. Yeah. Sorry, we should But you do have a record. No, you have a record player down here. You have a, yeah. This is kind of the better of the systems. The other one is where I do like my mixes for the NTS radio show that I host. So it's a little bit more functional up there with all the shelves and two turntables. Right. I should have probably given you a little look. Do you run the label out of here or do you have a do you have a location? We have a location. We actually just opened a storefront gallery office oh, space. Damn it. Yeah. Lower East Side. Uh unfortunately if you're around, you know, if you're trotting around. And we're occupying a former retail space and kind of have retrofitted ourselves into this really pristine, beautifully designed space. Great. So our warehouse is there. That's where we're doing all of our mail order and where we have this new public interface. I still work in Greenpoint at uh, the offices of Mexican Summer, where I'm also employed. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. So myself and one employee are in Greenpoint while the rest of the crew is in the Lower East Side. <laughs> it's not as like organized or glamorous as it sounds. Um, <laughs> it's just fractured. Right. That sounds, sounds as glamorous as Casablanca Records. Right. <laughs> It'll be cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the idea. Great. Um, why don't we listen to something? Cool. Yeah. Um, Do you want to tell me what it is first or you want to just throw it on? Well, sure, I can... Maybe we can listen to it first. Great. Dreaming 
Not at all. I mean, I certainly know Gary Wright produced yeah. it and, and contributed to totally. my, my favorite part of that song. Yeah, for sure. Wait, does he actually play on that song too? Well, it says it says additional keyboards and piano or something. It's or very something. It makes sense. So it's very Dreamweaver. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like this was his second album, um, and they brought in Gary Wright because the first album had tanked so disastrously they're like if anyone can say that it, it's it's the dream weaver <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah I I mean he definitely saves it in my opinion they couldn't get Alan Parsons so yeah exactly he was he was a little too busy in the pyramids <laughs> <laughs> so what was what so who is he or what well Peter Ivers yeah. is um, he was kind of, it's, it's really hard to describe because <clears throat> I wouldn't necessarily describe him as a musician first. Uh, he was kind of an artist of, of all things in our life. Uh, he, um, ultimately ended up walking into a major label deal, um, actually a couple of them, but via attending Harvard from this very interesting New England family background, learning harmonica with these really crazy blues players from Chicago, participating in Harvard's kind of theater world, meeting Doug Kenny, like the creator of National Lampoon at Harvard, becoming really good friends with all these kind of interesting types along the way to LA where he became even more immersed in the strange social circles of 70s Los Angeles and Hollywood. Um, but it was always kind of this sprightly character that walked into different rooms and lit them up with his kind of existential like uh, psychobabble and like his amazing outlook on life and he kind of ended up in all these very strange scenarios writing 
music for like Starsky and Hutch or penning like a number one hit for like Diana Ross. Um, Which one? I can't remember okay. the name. I'll look it up. Yeah, it's there. And like ended up hosting this seminal cable access television show called New Wave Theater. Wow. That exposed like the first, you know, like all these incredible LA punk bands. Oh, didn't Dangerous Minds just post that? Probably. Like it's all on YouTube or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. Okay, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, did. I didn't watch any of it, but yeah. He was the host, so. That's crazy. It's a great okay. insight to his, his world. Or a little bit. I mean, I think he was kind of there against his... I don't think he was necessarily like that interested in the music, but was interested in the celebrity around it, or the potential celebrity. The celebrity around the cable access yeah, show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did he ever have even a minor hit as a solo artist on a major label? Because that's a lot of money and a lot mm -hmm. of machinery behind... He did? He did have a hit? No. no. In fact, he kind of like sabotaged any opportunities he he had for any sort of commercial success. He, I think, on the tour before this for the album Terminal Love, he played some shows with Fleetwood Mac, and for one of the shows, like the most important show, I think it was at the Hollywood Bowl, he walked out in a diaper and started throwing hot dogs at the audience and it was a very like visceral negative response sure. to, his, to his kind of avant antics yeah so he wanted the fame and the celebrity and it all kind of traces back to like his a relationship with his family I suppose and a lot of expectations that were placed on him but he ultimately like subverted any opportunity for it. And I guess like the most tragic thing is he was murdered in 1983. Um, and it's an unsolved case Jeez. in LA. He moved to downtown LA when it was obviously really rough. And I can't imagine what it was like in 83. Exactly. Yeah. So there's quite a bit of mystery and, it's a it's a it's a really crazy story, but sometimes I th feel that overshadows like that really like glistening piece of pop music. Yeah, you know, like it's that's a really perfect three minute song to me. You know, that's Peter Ivers. <laughs> what else you got? I was gonna play. I'm kind of having some. Uh, I'm feeling a little conflicted on what I should play next, but I think I'll play this Woo track just because it's, oh shit, this is a sealed copy. Oh, well, that decided that. Yeah. <laughs> That's, there's an unsealed copy upstairs. Okay. There are, why don't I put on this from the, Major label, Canon.
thousand miles from Cairo, and it's taken me a year to get this far. whole album that good? No. Yeah, I wish. But I mean, <laughs> it has its, like most Godly and Cream records, it has, there are like other charming moments throughout, but there's also like just a lot of confounding kind of noodling and strange pop. Yeah. That was almost like 23 Skidoo Japan Whoa, yeah. Confluence or something. I hear that. <laughs> totally. Sort of fourth world. Definitely. Groove. For sure. I think that might... I think the fourth world funk kind of may draw me into that. Yeah. But I would never have... I mean, I don't know Godly and Cream. I, I know Godly and Cream's videos mm -hmm. from <clears throat> the mid-80s. Yeah. And that cry, cry. song exactly. that was a hit for no reason. Well, the video... I think I think it was MTV that made that a hit. Probably, yeah. I never thought about that. That was a pretty monumental video. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, they were incredible session players. Obviously, like before 10CC, they sculpted some amazing records, including Do You Know Ramsey's Space Hymns. No, but um, I, I didn't even know they were in 10cc. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. That explains a bit. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, you I mean, it doesn't explain that song, but it explains yeah. <laughs> how they stayed on major labels mm -hmm. for a while, anyway. For sure, and I think that's maybe one of the most more attractive things about that song. I mean, even like, and Peter's too, before that, is that this music was coming out on major labels. Yeah, like without, I'm sure there was some questioning and some a and happening around it, but that's a pretty fucked up song, you know? Yeah. It's a weird narrative about a jewel heist that's pit against, yeah, like this strange mutant funk, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's so, it's, it's kind of weird to think about at this point, the way in which major labels, you know, were a, a venomously capitalist enterprise back then, but the investment into artists were about longer returns uh, that would never happen today. Mm -hmm. But there's actually a really deep catalog of major label music that, the, the stuff that interests me is a lot of like British major label music, mm -hmm where we didn't hear, you know, like we didn't hear Simple Minds in America mm -hmm. until their fifth record. Right. And the first four are like incredible. Yeah. Or, you know, same with like Ultravox or, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of the new wave synth pop and punk bands mm -hmm. that were on major labels. Their first albums like 
they're not around here. Yeah. And they weren't even that big in the UK necessarily. Sure. But they're considerably interesting. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, and that happened here too. Anyway. Well, that, that's an interesting parallel, like Simple Minds. It, did, it took until that fifth album, it took until Godly and Cream's fifth album for Cry to happen. It took until yeah. Simple Minds' fifth album for uh, the Breakfast Club song to yeah. happen. But yeah, that was the pit, that was the return after yeah. years of a major label allowing an artist to. I mean, I don't even know if it was allowing. It was just like there wasn't. Yeah, the 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 commerce was was a different kind of um, grab at the time. Yeah, I was talking to Joe, one of the keyboard players for Psychedelic First, mm-hmm. the other night about this too. Right. Like they had some really interesting, really. Mm-hmm brash major label mm-hmm. records before Pretty in Pink came up. Not before they wrote that song, but right. before the movie. They re-recorded that song for the movie, but yeah. That's, yeah, it's wild. I, I, I love kind of inspecting that. I mean, all of these records, I basically pulled mostly, you know, or I mean, certainly those first two, but it's, just, it's interesting exploring that kind of thinking with, within those records. What do you think of I mean, we were talking earlier about um, re-releases and, and these sort of archival series. What do you think about the difference between, say, what you're doing with your re-releases and, I don't know, something like what Minimal Wave is doing or Josh Cheon is mm-hmm. doing with his label versus, like, that there is this amazing music that's never seen CD, let alone will ever be, potentially ever be on iTunes mm-hmm. that sort of deserves the same treatment. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She seems lost to behind a, a wall of lawyers, maybe. Mm, yeah. Well, I think Josh is doing like an incredible service, be, mostly because it's under his close inspection and on his watch, and yes. it's such a specific. It's. I mean, I think he's actually widened the scope quite a bit from where he originally focused, and that's that excites me a lot to see. Yeah the Patrick Cowley stuff or yeah. you know even like the severed head stuff that he's putting out it's like or the Smurfs stuff it's like wow like he's totally going on these really interesting um tangents and it's mostly unheard stuff and that's it's unheard in a different way that that Godly and Cream track or that Peter Ivers track is unheard it's it was unheard to begin with um, right. or it, unheard and displaced to smaller labels Very much smaller labels yeah. sometimes yeah um, so I think there's a real service in that kind of discovery and sharing that um, has a, a, a very right place in the reissue world you know I take a little like trouble maybe a little offense to the glut that's happening around reissue culture the the bubble that's kind of building but maybe that's just a little maybe I'm just resentful that they're not going to the right parts the major labels aren't exploring or even the indie labels that are going to major labels for these licenses are essentially copying a new product like are are 
objectifying something um, for the sake of like just producing, you know? And I don't, that's not the best use of resources, you know, especially when you can dig a little bit deeper and probably find that music on its original format. But it's a different business model. Like, and I, I understand that that business model, I just know that we can see historically how that business model failed. So why? <laughs> um, one more? Yeah, cool. with 
Joey's camel. Oh yeah, in a weird way. Although immediately we were talking about major labels and as soon as I saw the cover and it's like a single ink, like no major label would allow that. Totally. So I could immediately tell that this is an indie pressing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what was that? Um, well, this is, yeah, it's, so this is like obviously like a private press. Uh, this, I guess it was a band. It was probably maybe one person, one person's, uh, well, I don't know. No, it actually looks like it might be a band that functioned called Circus Underwater. And um, I think they were like a Maryland-based band because this record has kind of popped up around there a couple of times. It's like a little ridiculously hard to find. Um, uh, but the few like dudes I know that have like come across it like are from Maryland. Mm. Um, and I don't know like what the parallel that we were kind of talking about with major labels that to this, which is, you know, obviously like a privately pressed uh, record is that you can kind of hear and especially throughout the rest of the record which is not as like great as that track um, that they're they're really trying to go for it you know that they're thinking commercially but mm -hmm. creating um, in a way that will never be commercialized I kind of just love that concept that there were like this is essentially happening two years later than that uh, track from Godly and Cream, but um, in a totally different world, you know, in an underfunded kind of private world, you know? Yeah. It's also cool to hear um, interesting production ideas mm -hmm. from that era at that economy, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. like, like, you could do production like that for free now but at that time independent bands you kind of had to just go in the studio and knock it the hell out and production was icing you couldn't afford um, and it sounds like they had like studio ideas when they went in with that one which is kind of cool yeah for sure studio ideas that are charmingly underdeveloped yes and are probably based around a few takes versus you know <laughs> having a few months <laughs> exactly and I, there's so much amazing music from that like from all eras but certainly within like the the late 70s early 80s that um, I just love and always kind of go back to right and it's hard to say whether that like I don't I would not reissue this album <laughs> you know like that track in particular is incredible but in the same way that something that might be might have been completely commercialized and accessible might not need to be reissued or resurfaced from the water again I think the same can be said about this and it can just be enjoyed for what it, yeah. what it is when it was. Right. Is it a mixtape go-to for you? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Yeah. That's for sure. lots. 
one hundred percent. And you know, it blows it blows minds like when played out. But I can't really say as much for the rest of the record. Right. Yeah. yeah. You should check out Matt's label, Revenge. It's amazing. I'll post links at whywelisten.org. And I did get to visit his store, Commend, in New York, and it's really cool and worth the trip. A couple of footnotes. I welcome your input. Please share it at whywelisten.org. And if we've introduced you to music that you are interested in hearing more of, please buy it in the highest quality possible, as directly from the artists as possible. And if you're an iTunes or Stitcher subscriber, please take a moment and rate or review why we listen. We're now listening to Wheel Me Out by Was Not Was. I'm Mark Kate. This is why we listen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>